Welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Kennedy, and I'm here to help you become the very best version of yourself. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. This week's episode is an absolute cracker. I'm joined by the author of The Proof is in the Plants, Simon Hill. He's a podcast host himself. He's a nutritionist and he's also a physiotherapist. He's a very knowledgeable human being and I thoroughly enjoyed today's chat. We dive into detail about what it means to eat a plant-based diet. Um, I get an understanding of as to why Simon went plant-based in the first place. He shares his story, which is super interesting, um, and I think you guys are going to take a lot of value away from today's episode. We also cover the misconceptions around what it means to eat a plant-based diet the benefits, how we can integrate it in our day-to-day nutritional intake. Uh, Again, you're going to take a lot away from this episode. So if you do, please do take a screenshot and post it on your Instagram story for me. Tag myself and tag Simon as well. I'll have the link to his social media and also uh, a link to where you can purchase his book. A big thank you for tuning in um, and I'm really looking forward to bringing this episode. So I hope you guys enjoy. Simon, welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast, man. It's uh, It's a pleasure to have you on. I'm really excited for today. Danny, thank you so much for having me. A big, big fan of everything that you do. An OG on the podcast, I would say. So um, you're a big inspiration to me. So long time coming, I think, for us to to connect. And, and as I was just saying before, I'd love to have you on my show at some time too. Um, much appreciated, man. I really do appreciate that. Um, you know, once once we we locked in this this time slot and, and the date for the party, I've been kind of sitting down and really having to think about what I'd like to touch on today and not only just for, for myself, but probably more so for the, for the listeners, to be honest, because I know, you know, the, the plant-based diet is such a, a popular topic at the moment, but I think it's more so just misunderstood, which is why a lot of people struggle to understand um, why people eat plant-based, the benefits of it. There's a lot of misconceptions out there, which I'm also not hundred percent aware of as well. So I think, Everyone's going to get a lot out of today, man. So let's, um, let's kick things off, mate, with I'd love for you to share with the listeners a bit about yourself um, and, and in particular, why you went plant-based in the first place. Sure. So a uh, little quick preview into what I do. I have a master's in nutrition uh, and a bachelor's degree in physiotherapy. So I started off as a physiotherapist and then found my way into the world of nutrition. And for me, Danny, my interest in nutrition really stems back to my childhood. So my, my dad is a researcher and he researches cardiovascular disease and type two diabetes, really looking at, at risk factors and, and mechanism level under the microscope, Mm -hmm. you know, hardcore proper science. (laughs) And so for as long as I can remember, I grew up in Melbourne and uh, we lived in Eltham in the sort of Northeast. And um, for as long as I can remember coming home, I would always see piles and piles of scientific studies. And if I hopped in dad's car, he's picking me up from school or something. I'd usually have to move a big pile of them off the seat just to get in. And so science has, has been something that I've, I've always been around Mm-hmm. And I've always had a, an enormous amount of respect for and, and really appreciated in terms of how it can inform us to make better decisions with our life and, and to be healthier and happier. And so when I was 15, there was a particular day that really, I guess, planted a seed for me. And No pun intended. 
Yes. <laughs> and, and we, my dad and I, so on the weekends, my dad, my brother and I would often go out and explore the Yarra Valley. Yep. And it was, it was, it was a bit of an activity that we do on the weekend just to, to spend some time with dad and we'd visit different wineries and, and just yep. have a fun time out there hanging out. And on this one particular day, it was just my brother and I, and we, we went out and we, we spent the day together. It was great. My dad had an MGB convertible back then. And, uh, that was, you know, it was a, it was a spring day. It was sunny rolling Hills. It was beautiful. And we were driving home and, I could notice that my dad was experiencing some discomfort and I could see it on his face. He kept sort of grabbing his shoulder. And so I asked him if he was okay. And he said that he was experiencing some chest pain and he reassured me that it was okay. And we proceeded to drive home and we, we had a house in Eltham and then also a little bit of a, a sort of cabin out in King Lake. I'm not sure if you know, King Lake. I don't know the area well, but yeah. Yeah. It's it's like out past Whittlesea. Okay. And, yep. and so it is remote and this was, you know, it was in the woods. And so that's where we were staying. And just my dad and I that night and my mother and and, and brother were staying in Eltham. And so we we got back to King Lake and we had dinner. And he reassured me that everything was okay and uh, that that pain didn't seem to escalate. And, and so we cooked dinner and, and I headed off to bed. And a few hours later, I heard some cluttering around and enough noise to wake me up. And so I, I went out to, to check and see what that noise was and check on him. In the back of my mind, I was remembering that he was experiencing some pain. And so I went out and, and by that stage, he, it was past a point where he could deny it and hide mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And, and I could see he was very out of breath. He was pale. And it was probably, to be, to be honest, the first time I'd ever seen my dad have, a, have an expression of fear. I could see the fear. I could really sense it. See the worry. And yep. I should add, yeah, I should add, he, at, at this, on this day, he was only 41 years old. And so he wasn't, he wasn't an old guy. He was, uh, you know, relatively young. He had two, two teenage boys and, uh, was, was a very, very representative of, of an Australian young father. You know, his health was, was normal average. I would say he wasn't on any medications. He would exercise three or four times a week. He was probably carrying a little bit of extra weight, but not, not obese. Nothing out of and the ordinary. No, like he'd never, he'd never been diagnosed with any sort of condition or, or anything like that. He wasn't relying on, on the healthcare system. And, and so this was all very unexpected and he had called triple zero and was, you know, clearly had realized by this point he needed some emergency help. And he, he spoke to them and, and that by the time I made it out there, they asked if someone else was there to give a, a sort of more accurate description as to what was happening, which they often do. And I was the only person there. So, uh, I detailed to the Ambos what was happening and they said, based on where you're located in King Lake in the closest hospital, we need to send uh, a helicopter. And so it was super fast. A helicopter came. 
we're very lucky in this country to have this kind of yeah. medical service. Uh, helicopter came. Luckily, we had a, an area at the back where a helicopter could land. They came in, they scooped him up, they put him on oxygen, heart rate monitor, checking all the vital signs. And before I knew it, had stretched him out to the helicopter and said, I couldn't fit, uh, but I could trail in an ambulance by road. And so that was a long, long drive to the hospital for me. And I, I remember calling my mom and, and saying, you and, and my brother, James, you better come to the hospital. This is what's happening. And uh, we really don't know the outcome here. And so they did. And, and we got to the hospital and there was a long wait. And the doctor came out and he said to us, look, we've saved your father's life. He was having a very serious heart attack. Uh, and he'll be on medications for the remainder of his life, probably. But the most important thing is that he's alive. And definitely for us right there and then, that's what we were concerned with. Yep. So we were very, you know, very happy and, um, you know, thankful for all that medical care. And the next day, and this is really, I guess, the seed that was planted, was there was a bit of a team meeting with the cardiologist, my brother, myself, and my, with my mother. And by that time, the cardiologist had taken my dad's history. And he had his father, my grandfather had also had a heart attack. And he said to, to my brother and I, he said, this is the cardiologist. He said, look, you, you guys are nearly young adults. You will need to be screened and, and be careful as you grow up to make sure that you don't have a heart attack as well. Yeah. And that in itself is actually really good advice. It's really, it is good advice, but I just wish the conversation had gone further because for me and my brother for many years, we were left thinking, well, that's our genetic fate. This runs in our family. It's in our DNA. And so we really weren't, we really weren't left wondering what we could do to reduce our risk of, of having a heart attack. It, it felt like that was our destiny. Yeah. And so, you know, some 10 odd years later and, and going back to university and studying nutrition at a deeper level, it became very clear to me, and we have some great studies that speak to this, that while our genetics can predispose us to many different types of diseases, that's, that is true, by and large, it's our lifestyles that determine whether those genes are expressed. And the main reason, main reason why these chronic diseases, cardiovascular disease, various types of cancer, type 2 diabetes, even dementia, the main reason that these are running in families is because families usually adopt the same lifestyle. And so as I was uncovering this information, it was very empowering for me, first and, and foremost, and and certainly information that I wanted to share with my friends and my family. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, one thing led to another and, and eventually it was the inspiration to sort of set up and do everything that I've, I've, I've done and everything that I'm still doing today. That's incredible. There's always a story behind that driving passion and the driving factor. I was listening to a podcast just the other day with Jay Shetty and um, Deepak Chopra. And, uh, and he was talking about very, very similar topic. You know, he's like, the you know the top I think it was the top, I think he said the top five diseases or something like that. Yes, that there's a yeah you got a predisposed um, 
genetic um, makeup of, you know, the fact that, that that's a likelihood of you getting this disease, but 90% of the likelihood comes from what you do. It's all in your control. It's your lifestyle. It's your environment. It's what you put in your body. It's the, it's what you do, you know, the energy expenditure you do with your body. Um, and like you said, I think you use a really good word empowering. It's, it's, it's incredible to have that knowledge of knowing that it is up to us. Like, yes, there is a certain part of it, which is out of our control and that's just life. Um, but a lot of it is up to us. And that's why, you know, we do things like this podcast and, and provide content and, and ultimately what you're doing with everything that you're doing is to, to help others understand that and, and take control. So what was, I guess the, the first step for you was it um, in the nutrition side of things, was it then researching a lot about nutrition? Was it a bit of trial and error? Was it, you know, finding that certain foods made you feel better than others or, or was there someone that you looked up to or took advice from to go down the path of a plant-based diet? Yeah. So I should, I guess I should kind of, uh, should we define plant-based diet? Cause I think that's, I think, that's, I think we should. Yeah. That's, that's also, I guess, uh, quite interesting because as I was going through the, the research, like today I eat an exclusively plant-based diet, right? Mm-hmm. But as I was going through the research, I wasn't, I didn't read something and was compelled to do that overnight. That's, yeah, yeah. that's not how it happened. And, and, and a plant-based dietary pattern, if, you're, if we're talking about how it's used within nutrition science rather than how it maybe is used online and in the media, mm-hmm. well, it actually encompasses a Mediterranean diet, it encompasses a pescatarian diet, a vegetarian diet. Yep. It even it, it can encompass a, a sort of flexitarian diet that's very plant forward, um, all the way through to a plant exclusive diet. So I think that's important for everyone to understand that plant based, if we're talking about from a nutrition science point of view, is a bit of an umbrella term, mm-hmm. and different studies are using different types of plant based dietary patterns. Okay, and so. And so at the start, what was really clear to me and is very clear in the, in the nutrition science is that everyone wants this black and white answer. What is the single best diet? And usually what we're trying to do is we're trying to work out the single best diet based on these labels that we've made up. Yep. Many of those I just reeled off, right? Mm-hmm. And so early on, I was trying to work that out. And it's a, it's a valid question that people have, like what is the healthiest dietary pattern or dietary brand label, whatever we want to call it. And what became very clear to me was that in fact, science doesn't tell us what is the single most optimal dietary brand. It doesn't, and it probably never will, but what it does really shine light on is a set of characteristics or a theme. And that theme became stunningly clear for me, particularly from a cardiovascular disease risk point of view. And that is, you know, diet that is low in saturated fat. It's, it's got a good amount of unsaturated fats. It has a low amount of ultra processed foods. It's rich in fiber and it contains good amounts of plant protein. Now that actually can be done in a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. And, and so that can be kind of uncomfortable when people hear that because we do want the, the black and white definitive. I think that's, um, you hit the nail on the head, right? It's like everyone's looking, as you've said, the answer. And then when you say to someone, yeah, this is, 
the answer, but there's a few different answers under that answer. It's like, fuck. <laughs> now yeah, <what? laughs> so, so I guess the, the positive is that it means that you have choice. You have choice with underneath this sort of theme. There are different ways of going about it. And that might look a little different from person A to person B, person C. Mm-hmm. Now, what's, what's clear is though, diets that are plant predominant where a, a good amount of the calories are coming from whole plants what happens is automatically it becomes a diet that's low in saturated fat it's rich in fiber it's rich in plant protein and that's why you see these dietary patterns like a, a thoughtfully constructed mediterranean diet or a pescatarian diet or vegetarian diets in the research doing very well quite consistently mm-hmm. in terms of cardiovascular yeah. risk etc so where i was going with this is that that's what I discovered early on. And so for me, it was not about some sort of dietary label. It was, okay, well, my current diet, let's look at it. All right. I'm, I'm getting almost all of my protein from animal products. I'm, I'm not eating actually a whole lot of ultra processed foods. This was at the time. I actually wasn't eating a lot of those foods. Uh, but I had very little plant diversity and probably insufficient fiber like most Australians. And so for me, it was nudging in that direction. And what did that look like? Well, that looked like not having so much red meat. It was, instead of it being a daily or a twice daily occurrence, I was bringing in these foods like lentils and tempeh and different types of beans and tofu. And so naturally, as the more of those different little changes I was making, I was nudging my diet towards a higher fiber diet, a diet that, that was providing more protein from plants and a diet that was lower in saturated fat. So I was ticking all of these boxes. Now, as I was doing that, I was actually feeling the benefits. Yeah. And so I was personally feeling little, little changes in my, in my body, you know, energy, my sleep. I felt my, one of the biggest things that I felt was, you know, I, I grew up in, in Melbourne and uh, have a very close group of, of guy friends, you know, lads. And, you, you, you know, you, you have these big dinners out and boys dinners out. And we usually would choose steakhouses. And we would go a lot to Squire's Loft in, in Melbourne. And, you know, I, I loved those dinners. Some of the, you know, best nights out with your friends. And, uh, but I always felt afterwards, I always felt... Like I just needed to go to sleep straight away. It was very, very tiring for me to digest a huge steak. And it was probably more the, the size of the steaks there. Um, but one thing I noticed was that as I was eating more of these, pl- these plants that were rich in plant protein, my digestion felt a little lighter, a little bit more effortless. And I didn't feel like I needed to sort of have a nap after a, a huge meal. Uh, and so it was just these subtle little changes because I wasn't someone coming into this with health problems. So for me, it was just feeling these little subtle changes in energy and sleep and digestion. And I was just empowered to continue making changes. And also I was getting confidence because I had all of those, you know, very valid questions that most people in my position would have around nutrients and protein. And I wanted, I'd, I'd read the science, but I wanted to see how it felt for me. And, and if it was possible to eat in this way, 
not just to reduce my risk of chronic disease, but to also feel good and continue to perform and, and pursue athletic endeavors as well. Yeah, that's a, that leads me on to something that I wanted to, to ask you is in regards to performance, in regards to, um, say, building a physique, obviously on this podcast, we talk about a range of different things, but a lot of the time the topic is around not only how you feel and, and how you perform, but also the aesthetic side of things as well. So a question that come up a lot when I posted a, a story on Instagram yesterday saying that we were going to have a chat was you know, how do you go about trying to build muscle mass? Is it super difficult to get in enough protein to repair the muscles and to grow um, when you're in a gaining or massing phase? Like were these, were these things issues for you early on and has there been certain, I guess, hacks you could call it that you found over time that helped this process? Definitely. There's a, this is a great question. There's a lot to unpack here. So let's, let's step it out. Uh, so I went into this already training and was taking my training relatively seriously so i i really i understood my strength capacity and um so i had good luck good sort of baseline understanding of where i was at um and i was worried i was very worried about shifting away from animal protein to plant protein uh you know through my uh you know, my initial university in physiotherapy, that was when I started working out, surrounded by, you know, just typical gym culture and fitness culture, uh, and then football culture and everything was centered around animal protein. So that was my background I was coming from. So I, I definitely feared this transition to plant protein. Uh, the first thing that I needed to understand was that I could actually get all of the essential amino acids yep. that my body would need. and to be honest, initially I thought that plants were completely missing certain essential amino acids. And in fact, through my nutrition course, that was actually how it was taught. Um, but, it, yeah. but it's not actually correct. Um, all plants contain all essential amino acids, but they are, they are in different ratios. And so there are what are known as limiting amino acids. And if we go into the weeds here, you can feel free to pull me out, but I think this is interesting for people to, yeah. to hear. Uh, and you've probably covered this stuff on your, on your show before, but a limiting amino acid like lysine, for example, in, in rice. Mm-hmm. Now, this, uh, this idea of a limiting amino acid, essentially what it means is that if you were to eat only that food for all of your caloric requirement for the day, Mm-hmm. then you would fall short on the adequate amount that your body requires of that essential amino acid. So if you eat, say, 3,000 calories, that's your requirement, and you eat 3,000 calories of brown rice, you're going to fall short on lysine. Yep. Um, and, and that, as a, a sort of definition, kind of makes sense if we're talking about developing countries and third world countries where perhaps they, they have very limited food access. Mm-hmm. But if, you're, if you have just modest amounts of diversity in your diet, that, that issue goes away straight away. Yeah. So, uh, and the other thing is that it's sometimes it's thought that you need in every single meal, you need to have uh, sort of complementary proteins. But it looks like it's more over a 24-hour period. So the body does have some ability within a 24 hour period to have a pool of these amino acids 
And so the diversity that I'm talking about, really that, that comes down to a daily basis, not a single meal. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is sort of deep, deep into, I guess, uh, the, the weeds. What's probably more important is if we come out and look at science that's comparing someone eating an omnivorous diet versus someone compare, uh, eating a completely plant-based diet and what are the difference in terms of their outcomes uh, from a, a strength point of view and hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's a bunch of research and you, you will be well, well across this that shows that we, if, we're, if we are wanting to optimize strength and hypertrophy, we want to be consuming at least around 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight, sort of as a, as a lower threshold. Uh, and there are some nuance to this, I guess, if you're cutting and you're in an extreme deficit. Yeah. But if we're just talking about the average person here, uh, that's, that's sort of that, the threshold. And there was a recent study that did look at exactly this. And they took uh, male uh, adults. These were fit healthy adults who were doing lots of physical activity, but they weren't strength training athletes. So they were coming into this untrained, which is, I guess it's, it's important to know. And they, they, this is the first study that's ever matched total protein and okay. compared and compared an omnivorous diet with a completely plant-based diet. And it, this is important because all of the previous studies, what they've done is they've added a, say a vegan protein to to one group but their baseline diet was omnivorous so it's not a true representation of getting all of your protein from plants whereas this study did that and and they were and the studies were taking in one 1.6 gram per kilo by the way yeah yeah so that was their target they both groups ended up at 1.7 when they did when they uh added up all of the 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 meal intake the nutrient intake across the study and they found over the, the duration of this study, which was a three-month, it was a 12-week uh, program. There was a progressive overload training program in there. Uh, this study was actually out of Brazil. And they, they found no differences in uh, lean muscle uh, growth, cross-sectional area, or strength, which was you know, very, very interesting. But I think it does speak to what are our priorities here? What are the most important things? And I'd be interested to workshop this with you. But I would say, and I still say this to people, number one is your training stimulus. Mm. And you've got to send a signal to the body to grow. And I think sometimes we forget that. And then uh, your uh, hitting a protein target and calories is going to be very important. Uh, and what this study is, is speaking to, at least in this, this population group, who are healthy males, untrained going into it, there was no difference based on the source of the protein as long as the total protein was hitting 1.6 grams. So, And do you mind me asking what the what sources, like what actual foods or, su- or was it supplements that the um, plant-based uh, group yeah, were using? Great question. So this is, and this is something that, there's been a lot of commentary about this online. The so in both groups there was a protein shake. In the yep. uh, omnivorous group it was a whey protein shake, and in the the plant based group it was a, a soy uh, isolate. And uh, 
interestingly, in the omnivorous group, they had 43 grams of plant protein a day, whereas in the plant-based group, they had 60. So they averaged about 17 grams more per day out of protein powder, which probably uh, makes sense. The interesting thing is I would say that the plant-based diet, and I've spoke to the guy that, that did this study on my podcast, I would say they didn't optimize the baseline diet from a protein point of view. There was no tofu or seitan or tempeh, which are going to be your higher protein per calorie plant foods. Mm-hmm. They were getting their protein from chickpeas and kidney beans and right. black beans. So there, I think there would have been room in that study to optimize the diet a little bit to then bring the soy protein shake down if someone wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the study was out of Brazil and, and, and they don't have the same food access to some yep. of those higher, higher protein plant foods. One, uh, one more thing I was going to ask you with that one was uh, in regards to calorie intake, so the protein intake was um, was set at 1.6 or 1.7 um, per kilogram of body weight. In regards to calories, were all participants eating in a calorie surplus? Were they were they at maintenance, or how how did that look? They the average was around 3,000 calories. Okay, I'm not sure if for the individuals if that was a calorie surplus yep. or uh, a deficit, but there was no importantly there was no significant difference between the calorie intake between groups. Okay, cool. Uh, and even in saying that, I still, as I as I mentioned there, I think there there would be a way within that plant based arm if you wanted to to sort of further optimize to, to drop calories a bit, yeah. which is you know some something that a question I often get is when someone is wanting to to keep the protein up but drop the calories. Calories, yeah. What do you do? Yeah. What What do you do? What What's uh What's the best way to do that? Because I know. Um, even going off the clients that I work with on their nutrition, those that do have the, the, the itch to, to go more plant-based often have that, I guess, fear is the word you could use or, or worry about how they would be able to stick to their deficit, but keep the protein intake high enough. You need to, to look to foods like, like seitan. Protein powder is going to be in there. If you're if you're an athlete and you're trying to do this and mani- manipulate it to to be in the calorie deficit, and you're you're doing it all with plant based uh, foods and and supplements, then protein powder you're going to lean on. Seitan is your highest protein plant based protein food per calorie. Mm-hmm. So and it's also very rich in leucine. We haven't spoken about leucine, but there's, yeah. there's, if, I feel like if someone's going to that length to optimize, they're probably also concerned around about leucine and getting enough leucine in their diet to maximize muscle protein synthesis. Uh, you're going to shift away a little bit from whole grains, which often people in the plant-based community are eating quite a lot of. Yep. You're going to shift away from those and you will eat more tofu, more tempeh, and I don't mind that because you're all, this person's already going to be consuming a very high fiber diet. So I'm not so worried about the removal of whole grains yep. for, for someone who has this specific goal. Uh, so those are the types of things that I would be manipulating and changing if someone was wanting to go high protein, at least 1.6 grams per kilogram and trying to bring their calories down. We were just taking it back a, a step quickly before we keep moving forward. Um, you know, you mentioned before it's it's the word plant based can often be a 
bit confusing to understand exactly what that means. Like for your style of eating, is that classified under vegan? Like, are you, are you vegan? Yeah. So I would be, I, I don't describe myself as sort of vegan. And yep. I mean, I, I, I choose to do that because I just don't like getting involved the label. In, the, in the diet wars and, and, and all of that. And really my personal decision for, for consuming a plant exclusive diet is more for environmental uh, reasons than, and, and animal welfare reasons than health. It's if, if those weren't considerations for me, then I would be, you know, quite happily mm-hmm. adopting a, a more plant predominant style diet. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I, I wrote about that in my book. I yeah. think that, that we don't need to be dogmatic about that. Uh, that's a personal decision for me. Uh, and it means that, that I've, I've had to go through these types of optimizations that we're talking about because it is more challenging. It can't be denied that at 100% plant exclusive, it is more challenging to hit the protein and mm-hmm. the calorie goal if you're someone who's trying to to really drop body fat and maintain muscle mass. Yeah. We're, in terms of uh, what you've just touched on, maybe not going all in with the plant-based or so not exclusively plant-based, has there been many or, or any studies done to show, for example, if, if I have a client um, who chooses to go, uh, plant-based say two out of their three meals a day or maybe every dinner they go they eat plant-based has there been any studies shown to 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 show the difference or the health benefits that can come from just making switches um, not oh, to the yeah. whole diet yeah there's loads so so you know i even write about a two-third plant-based diet in my book uh firstly when it gets to a plant predominant sort of dietary pattern and we're, we're talking 80 85 of calories coming from plants you're you're splitting hairs to try and say what is better from a health point of view it gets to a point of the diet where where science can't tease that out it Mm. would really be impossible we would need to set up a randomized controlled trial from birth randomize people to these different diets that are all really good versions of the of that diet and have those people follow them for the rest of their life it's going to be impossible it'll be too expensive and it would take too long and and so we that's that's something that's really important for people to remember a lot of what we see in science in terms of finding a significant finding you have to compare two diets that are very different a standard diet versus a mediterranean or a standard diet versus a vegan but once you get to a point and you start comparing these diets that are very very similar with just a few differences it's you're going to require so many people and you're going to have to follow them for so long to ever find a difference if there is any difference. Yeah. So um, it's a great point for someone that doesn't want to go all in. Absolutely. There's huge benefits. If you're shifting, for example, there, there, there's a great study, uh, 2019, a researcher called uh, Bergeron and they, they set out to look at, it's a funny name, right? They, they, they set out, they wanted to look at the difference between red meat, white meat, and uh, legumes yep. when it comes to cholesterol levels. And so, I mean, and often we hear that, that white meat is, is a lot better for health than red meat. And so this was an interesting study. The reason this is interesting is our LDL cholesterol level 
we know that we want that to be down at a healthy level for as long as possible. When that's raised and it's raised over a long period of time, that's what we call the exposure, the total exposure. That's, that's what's increasing our risk, not by itself, but the main thing that's increasing our risk of what's called atherosclerosis, which is the laying down of the plaque in our arteries. Okay. And so the average person in Australia today, Danny, that has an LDL sitting at about 120, 130. You have to get your cholesterol down to about 70, your LDL cholesterol to about 70. That's the point where you're not developing any of this plaque. So when our, when our LDL cholesterol is at that 120, 130, which is the average in Australia, we underneath the skin in our blood vessels, we are having this plaque. It's bubbling away. It's building. Yes, we don't see the outcome of that usually until we're in our 50s or 60s. Mm-hmm. That's, that, chronic diseases have long latency periods. You know, yeah. It yeah. might not be showing now, but it's happening. It's not an and overnight so, thing. And so here's the thing. Coming back to is, there, is, this, is this all or nothing or are there benefits on offer just by making some small changes? So this study showed that uh, there was no difference between red and white meat when it came to cholesterol levels. But there was okay. a significant reduction when people were eating more plant protein from legumes. Okay. So we know that that's very clear. And that's one of the reasons why these plant-based dietary patterns are so protective. You get a twofold effect. You are reducing these animal foods that, uh, that increase cholesterol. And at the same time, you're increasing these plant foods that actually have inherent properties, fiber and plant sterols that drive cholesterol down. Now, study out of Finland recently, I'm segueing from that study for a reason, because that what they did was they looked at, they compared a diet where 70% of protein was coming from animal protein mm-hmm. to, to a diet where just 30% of protein was coming from animal protein. Okay. So, so in that diet where just, just 30% is coming from uh, animal protein, the rest is all coming from plant protein. So these diets are like opposite. And they did find significant decrease in LDL cholesterol. So what we can take away from, and these are just two of many studies, is that as you're shifting and downshifting on red meat and white meat and you're eating more beans and uh, lentils and tofu and chickpeas, your cholesterol levels will be dropping. They will drop in a matter of weeks, you know, three weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, you will see, you, you can test this on your blood tests and your risk of cardiovascular disease will be dropping at the same time. Now, high right. cholesterol is also a major risk factor for dementia. So you're not just going to be improving your, your risk profile for cardiovascular disease, which is the leading cause of death in our country, but also for dementia. You know, and, and, mm. and, and so there are huge benefits on offer just by, by making those changes, as you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really, uh, when I get asked this question, usually someone also says, well, what animal products should I leave in the diet? Uh, and that's a good question. Uh, and, and, and even though I don't eat those products, I will speak to the science because I think that's important information for people to have. And my answer to that is, to where you are having animal products, ideally it's lean meat. Yep. You know, be it be it red or or white meat, it's lean cuts, and ideally from animals that are fed their native diet. I think okay. that is going to lead to a higher quality product, uh, and it's also better for the animals through the the, the duration of their life. 
uh, fatty fish, small sort of fatty fish that are lower on the food chain, salmon and sardines and mackerel, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and the other one that I often uh, suggest, and, and I think this has actually very good uh, planetary health benefits is bivalves. So oysters right. and um, uh, scallops and clams, right. you know, foods like that. So uh, to round that out, there are enormous benefits. Even if you're going to that sort of two-third plant-based diet, mm-hmm. you will lower your risk of these chronic, major chronic diseases and you will feel better for it. You'll feel yeah. better for it in your, in your day-to-day. Yeah, well, in the end of the day, that's 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 what we're all chasing, isn't it? And I mean, we've touched on a lot of the, I guess you could say, misconceptions to this point. But and without giving away all your secrets, mate, what are is there any kind of misconceptions misconceptions that really stick out to you that you kind of get asked very frequently that you think the listeners could benefit from of having a better understanding? We don't need to go into huge detail, but I guess some of the things that come up quite often for you, whether it's in the DMs or with people in person around eating a plant-based diet. Yeah, there's, there's a few. So if we continue on with the protein, probably the next question on that is around absorption and bioavailability. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and there's an idea out there that animal protein is much more bioavailable. Uh, now, I would argue that what matters most is the outcome. So like that study I explained yeah. earlier uh, that showed that the strength in the hypertrophy was the same. I would yeah. argue that that matters more than uh, any, any other study that's looked at bioavailability. However, what's important to understand from a bioavailability point of view, and I'll keep this really short, is that historically we have had science showing that animal protein has has much better bioavailability this was from studies using uh animal models rats and pigs Mm -hmm. and the most important thing to understand here is in these animal models they're feeding the animals raw plant protein almost always and so you can imagine if you were to try and eat a dried bean i don't know i don't recommend it yeah, it's not on the uh, menu. We, we know that when you properly prepare particularly plant foods and cook them, for example, beans, the nutrients become more bioavailable. bioavailable. So it's, it's really not a, a, a great uh, scientific experiment yeah. to try and work out what's the difference in bioavailability in humans. And human studies now have looked at this and they're showing that the difference is probably only a few percent. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as I was speaking about health outcomes earlier, mattering more, that's probably clinically insignificant. So I think that's uh, something that's, that's worth covering. The next is soy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Often am asked about soy. Yeah. And, and particularly uh, whether males should be concerned about soy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the phrase that comes up quite often is man boobs. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I've spent a lot of time going through the, the research on this. And, Again, I came at this from the point of view of, hey, if there's science there showing that soy consumption is going to be detrimental to my hormones, I want to know because I will steer clear of it. Yeah, for sure. And so so, um, this speaks to an important principle and that is that not all science is equal and there is an evidence hierarchy and we can use that to sort of grade different levels of science. And online, when I was going through this, I wanted to understand where 
someone who is suggesting that soy is harmful, I want to understand where they're basing that opinion from. What is it from? What's the evidence? And I, I found two main sources of evidence where this was coming from. The first is from my, my studies. And so there are my studies showing that when uh, with, with large amounts of soy consumption, male mice have changes in, in hormones and have side effects. And so there's two things that we need to, to then consider here. One is what's the exposure level? Exposure level is something that particularly on social, social media is never discussed. But in nutrition science, it's absolutely critical because if we're talking about any food, no matter what it is, to answer is it healthy or is it harmful, we have to understand how much are we talking about? Are we, yeah, and, exactly. and are we talking about once a day, twice a day, three times a day, once a week? We, we have to understand consumption habits. And so in these animal studies, if you go into them, they are consuming soy at a level that we would never consume. It would be impossible for us to consume in a day. So the exposure is not comparable to what we would be exposed to if you're looking at grams of soy per kilogram of body mass. Yeah. So those studies have, have a problem. They're interesting and they're sort of hypothesis generating. And it's enough if there was no other science, it's probably enough for some people to go, I'm going to take the precautionary approach yeah. and steer clear of soy. That's, so that's one, one source of where soy confusion is coming from. The second is there is a case study that was published uh, by a, a doctor who had a patient and it was a young, healthy male adult patient who suffered from what's called gynecomastia and gynecomastia is sort of enlargement of breast tissue in a male yep. can actually occur in a female as well. Uh, but this, this on probing this uh, gentleman about his history, it became clear that he was consuming three liters of soy milk a day. And so the case study was written up uh, and, and of course it's been cited thousands of times now and it's shared you know, pervasively online. Um, but again, we have to come back to exposure. I'm, I'm almost certain if you had three liters of dairy every day or three liters of a lot of things every day, there could be problems. I uh, say so. <laughs> and so um, again, if that was all of the evidence, I would get it enough to be, uh, sort of cautious about, but it's not. We have human studies. We have uh, what's called a meta-analysis, which last year looked at combined the results of 38 different clinical trials. So this is the top line evidence. It's clinical trial interventions with humans, not with animals. Let's feed them soy products and let's look at their estrogen levels. Let's look at their uh, free testosterone, total testosterone, and let's see does this food affect hormones when we're looking at consumption levels that would take place in society? Mm-hmm. And they found absolutely not. There was no changes in hormone levels. These studies ranged from six weeks all the way up to 52 weeks. So long enough to, to where you would expect to see something. Uh, so my advice uh, to, to people listening and to really anyone I speak to is that you can, you don't need to fear soy. Uh, but like all foods, I don't think you need to go overboard on it either. And so yeah. you know, traditional communities consuming soy probably consume about one or two serves a day. And so in line with that appears perfectly fine. Uh, and equally, if for some reason you don't want to consume soy or you're allergic, 
then you know by all means is it's it's also not necessary so uh mm. it's it's everyone has their own choice there unreal man look we're, we've covered we've kind of just started to touch the side today <laughs> i reckon we could we could keep going for a long time we, we definitely have to do a part two I just want to quickly touch on before I wrap up the book, man, how was the process of, of putting it together? Has the response been? And obviously I'll have the link in the show notes, but where can the listeners um, access the book um, so they can continue to learn for those that have been interested in today's episode? Yeah. Thanks mate. The, so the book's called the proof is in the plants and probably the best place to, to go is plantproof.com forward slash book. From there, you can see a link to all retailers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in bookstores across Australia and, and all the major online bookstores. So if you want to grab a copy, uh, you can find it there. Uh, how was the process? Uh, it took, took three and a bit years, so it's nice to see it out there now. And yeah. um, you know, it's really, I'm really pleased with the traction, so it's nice to see that uh, the community far beyond my own personal reach is really interested in this information. So yeah, it's going well. Fantastic, mate. Well, Simon, a huge thank you for joining me on the show today, man. Um, I'd love to to catch up in person when we can and um, and we'll definitely do a part two. It's been really informative. I've taken a lot away from it. And um, like I said, we could we could go on for hours and I'm, and I'm sure we will at some point. But a big thank you to you, man. Um, I'll have the links to, as I mentioned, the book and the socials and everything in the show notes below. Um, if there's anything else you want to mention, jump in, man. Otherwise, uh, again, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Probably just one one thing I'll mention there about the book is 100% of the proceeds that I receive from Penguin are being donated. So your purchase will go towards uh, protecting the Daintree rainforest in Australia from deforestation. So each book sold, we've calculated, will save two square meters. Uh, so yeah, if you buy the book, uh, hopefully good for your health, but also good for uh, our country as well. Incredible, man. Good on you. Uh, again, man, thanks a lot. And for everyone who's tuned into the episode, a uh, big thank you for listening today. We, we, t- we hope you've taken away a lot of value, which I'm sure you have. Um, if you've enjoyed the episode, please do take a screenshot uh, on your phone right now. Post it up on your Instagram story for us. Tag myself, tag Simon. Again, I'll have the links to his socials in the show notes. Uh, big thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Again, thanks, Simon. Thanks, mate.